welcome to the Old and In the Way comedy podcast with Bob and Mark, where we fight ages and one bad joke at a time. Reluctantly, we had to learn the hard way that denial and repression oftentimes are not enough to hold back the tides of reality before we get our tickets punched. So our mission is clear and compelling. We will pull the veil back on aging and reveal much of what's real and absurd with growing old. Political correctness be damned, and yes, there will be malarkey. But before we get started, we'd like to thank our fictitious sponsor, Smart Again, a brain supplement for their continued support. Three, two, one. Remember remembering? Smart Again is a brain supplement that will have you wondering in no time how you got to be so damn smart again. Smart Again is made with all unnatural ingredients that will reverse your cognitive decline, heighten your mental acuity. It's like artificial intelligence in a pill. And Bob, Bob, what are the secret ingredients again? Oh, uh, fentanyl and, and methamphetamine. Oh, God. And oxytocin. I guess, I guess that can't be too bad. But um, after taking Smart Again for a couple of days, I've been able to uh, find my car in the parking lot. I've stopped yelling at the neighbor's kids more times than not. When I walk into a room, I know why I'm there. It really is an amazing experience. Just to remind you, Smart Again cannot be found at fine stores everywhere. And ladies and gentlemen, we'd like to introduce our special guest here today, Steve Rock and Roll Kaiser. Kaiser Roll. Steve, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you guys doing? Good. I understand you're an artista too. I am. I've been an artista since uh, 1980. And I helped launch it with Alton Kelly in the late 70s. And then when Crowbar came around in the 80s with Pat Ryan, they reinvented it. And here we are today. And Dave Sheridan. And Dave Sheridan, thank you. That was out of my part. No, it's, uh, it's a great organization, a great family to be a part of. And uh, I've been involved, like I say, since 1980. And, uh, stage manage most of their uh most of their uh, concerts most of their parties uh, in recent years uh, thank you for making making that all happen i'm guessing you knew alton kelly too i did uh i was the uh, manager for the band dinosaurs back in the 80s and uh, kelly would do all of our posters and i uh, got to know him and marguerite very well and I got to see those posters being made because I have a dinosaur story where Kelly had told me I was going to MC the show at the Corte Madera Town Hall. And I'm standing in the wings. I've got about 10 minutes of stand-up I was going to do. And then Wavy Gravy walks out, takes over the show. Yeah, yeah. And then I was like, what the hell am I doing here? But it was all fine and just an honor to be there in any context. But um, I guess we have um, Evelyn Broadkin to thank you for your incredible life. <laughs> yes, indeed, we do. Um, I love that. And I am another person who have done ridiculous things to try and impress women but um i love the part that you guys reconnected in san francisco it was really sweet you know after uh after sixth grade when i was 12 years old i i never saw or talked to her again even though she was my first first elementary school crush 
And um, four or five years ago, I, uh, I found her on Facebook and uh, she was coming out to San Francisco for a, uh, wow. something to do with the work she did. And so we had a wonderful lunch and I took her all around uh, San Francisco and Marin County and a nice din dinner by the beach. And um, it was just very sweet to, to connect with, you know, my, my first heartthrob from when I was, you know, 10, 11 years old. And for those mystified by what we're talking about, she was the girl you wanted to impress and join and decided uh, because she was going to learn how to play violin that you were going to learn how to play violin and then you wound up conducting. Yes, yes, yes. I didn't know what instrument I wanted to play, but I saw her raise her hand for violin and I thought this is my chance to sit next to her and impress her. Unfortunately, she was a great violinist. I was a lousy violinist, so I didn't sit anywhere near her. And uh, so that was fifth grade. And then in sixth grade, the, uh, the, uh, the music teacher called me into, the, into his office the first day of school. And I thought he was gonna kick me out of the band because I was such a lousy violin player. But he said, Steve, we need a, uh, we need a conductor. And I thought, this is great. I, I don't have to read music. I don't have to stay in tune. And Evelyn's gonna love this. So um, I became the conductor and um, still didn't get anywhere with Evelyn, but like I say, many, many years later, we, we reconnected and, um, and you know, we had a nice friendship. So, so you had a, a resulting career in music, did she? Um, no. <laughs> there, you, there you go. I, I love the part of your story where even though you were in Baltimore, you found yourself, found your way to White Lake in, uh, August of 1969. Um, I um, lived about 40 minutes from White Lake and was one of the few people that also actually bought tickets. And what what a show. Uh, it changed my life forever that weekend. It just uh, you know, absolutely had a, had a major impact on me. I was a, um, you know, kind of a confused teenager uh, starting to do um, smoke a little pot and do a little psychedelics when I was around 18. Um, but I just never felt right uh, growing up in an upper middle class Jewish uh, home in, in Baltimore. Um, and I didn't know what was wrong, but just something didn't feel right. But when I listened to the radio, uh, I was inspired by a lot of the songs and a lot of the lyrics. And I knew that there was tens of thousands of people all over the country listening to and digging the same music. So that gave me a sense of community, even though I couldn't see these people. Um, and then I went to Woodstock and there was 400,000 of them. Um, and the so, vibe, the vibe yeah. was just overwhelmingly positive. I spent the whole summer afterwards walking around giving people the peace sign and probably still to this day, oftentimes, just as a communication device. And what a wonderful moment. Indeed, indeed. It, it, it changed the world to, to have all those people together and no violence and, and, you know, dealing with the terrible weather and the lack of food and everybody just shared everything. And um, it, 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 was, it was a true community. And like I said, it's, it's inspired me every day since. And then Altamont, Altamont came along and ruined everything. Well, uh, Woodstock could not be duplicated. You know, they tried to duplicate it, you know, as Woodstock events and Altamont and other things, but, um, you know, the, the insanity of, of human beings uh, got involved in that, that one time uh, magical moment um, could not be repeated. And I assume neither of you took the brown acid. No, no. 
it's funny though that I got there on Thursday night with my girlfriend and Friday morning we're walking around the grounds and you know tens of thousands of people and I look up on a little hillside and there's my sister you know of all people I knew she was coming but I had no idea I would you know even see her with all those people and I went up and sat on the hillside with her and she gave me some purple mescaline but uh, I, I stayed away from the brown acid. Wow. Uh, so we we wind up. Uh, your book is fascinating, and I recommend that everybody check it out. Uh, Rock and Kaiser Roll. Uh, we wind up having a a bunch of clients in common and and people in common. Uh, but it looks like your adventure uh, on the the business side of the business started with John Cipollina. Uh, am I am, is that correct? No, it was a little bit, um, actually, my business started with another Mill Valley guitar player by the name of Mike Bloomfield. Ah. You know, one of the great guitar players of all times. Um, when Dylan went electric in 1965 at Newport, it was, it was Mike Bloomfield playing electric guitar. Yeah. Um, so, I, and I had just moved into a house in 1979 um, with a, uh, a guy who's also his name Steve, who played bass guitar with a band called Chicago Blues Palette. And this was Bloomfield's backup band. Um, Mike would sometimes show up for shows, sometimes not. He was very strung out and, you know, kind of a, a wonderful guy, but a sad, such a sad story. Um, and um, so I, I was booking Chicago Blues Power. You know, whenever I'd call a venue, I'd say, This is Bloomfield's backup band, and that gave him some credibility. And three or four months into the gig, um, Bloomfield, they found him uh, OD'd uh, in his car on 19th Avenue in San Francisco. So I thought, well, there goes my music career. Um, the day after Bloomfield passed away, uh, Boz Skaggs, who at the time, there was probably nobody bigger in the world than Boz. The year before, his Silk Degrees album had gone gold. And, um, you know, he was just huge. So Boz calls up the leader of Chicago Blues Power and says, um, Mike Bloomfield was my hero. Can I come down to sit in with you guys in Chicago Blues Power at this little hundred seater in North Beach, San Francisco called the Saloon? Can I come down this Saturday night and sit in to pay my respects? What are we gonna say? So uh, we said, of course you can, Boz. He says, I have only one rule. What's that, Boz? You can never call me Boz Skaggs because my agent, my manager, my label would kill me knowing that I'm playing in this little dive for you know a $5 cover. You have to call me Dallas Slim. So we did. And um, you know we, we introduced him as Dallas Slim. Of course, the audience knew who he was, but they played along. And uh, he came down four or five times over the next couple of months, which was just amazing. Wow. Oh, that's, a great, that's a great story. It was... Uh, uh... Did, did, was the saloon where, where, where Steve Gordon was, or was that a different venue over there? Well, he had a place called the, called the Savoy Tivoli, which was oh, about two, okay. two blocks okay. up Grant Avenue from the saloon. But, um, and I remember talking to Boz one night, and he was saying, you know, Steve, I'm playing Coliseums, I'm playing stadiums, you know, I'm a big star now, but you know what I really love to do? I said, what's that, Boz? He says, I love to play in a little juke joint like this with a blues band. That's That's really... You know where my heart is. Oh my so god, that, that, that was kind of cool. 
And, um, and of course, Herb Cain, who was a big columnist for the Chronicle at that, San Francisco Chronicle at that time. A lot of people bought the Chronicle just for Herb Cain, or they'd go right to Herb Cain's gossip column. And I knew Herb was a big Boz Skaggs fan. So Saturday night, he's down at the saloon in Chicago Blues Tower. Monday morning, I call him up. Herb, your boy was down at the saloon. I told him the whole story with Bloomfield and all of that. And, um, he, and uh, Tuesday morning, I got two sentences in his column. And, uh, so, and he said to me, every time he comes down, give me a different angle and I'll write it up. And he did. So now I could call any venue in the greater Bay Area and say Chicago Blues Power. And they booked my band thinking that Boz was going to come to their club which he never did, <laughs> but, but what it did was it, now I had the ear of club owners and club bookers who would take my call, who would return my, my uh, voicemails. Um, um, and, uh, you know, be, because of this whole connection with, with Boz. Um, so Chicago Blues Power got a bunch of gigs out of that. And um, now I had the ear of all these club owners, but only one band. So I expanded my roster and, um, the rest is history. <laughs> and you did all of this when there was no technology, reading your story, you're um, doing this on the phone, which obviously is technology, but um, it was more personal at that time than I would imagine today. Yeah, no emails. Yeah. No, 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 uh, no and, and off, oftentimes you're dealing directly with the artist instead oh, yeah. of their controllers. Oh, yeah. So, so you were, you you've been a booking agent and also a road manager. I know you were a road manager for Starship uh, or Starship Offshoot for a long time. Uh, did, did, did you like being on the road? I, I... You know, um, when I was growing up, uh, I, I loved a lot of music, but I had a particular love for the San Francisco sound and Jefferson Airplane were my favorite band. Uh, in 1992, uh, Paul Kantner reunited what he called Jefferson Starship, the next generation, which was Paul Kantner, uh, Jack Cassidy, Papa John Creech, um, shortly after the band started, uh, Marty Ballin joined the band. Um, and I was traveling all around the country, watching people, you know, enjoy White Rabbit and Somebody to Love and all these tunes that were you know, just so important in, in, when I, in my teenage years. So it was thrilling to me. I remember uh, somebody asked me, Steve, what's the most memorable experience you've ever had in the music business? And I said, when I was with uh, uh, Jefferson Starship, The Next Generation, there's somewhere in a small town in the Midwest. And I'm standing in the wing of the stage, watching the band, and I look out at the audience, and I think, they're, I think they were singing Somebody to Love. And there's a woman in the first row uh, singing along and tears were streaming down her face. And I know that those were tears of joy because she was locked into the memory of herself probably as a teenager, um, you know, and all the, the memories that came with that song. But um, the little part I've played over the years in getting live music out to people has been so fulfilling to me because music is, it's the most magical thing in the world. It's the only phenomenon where people, whether it be a couple of dozen or a couple of thousand people can get together. They don't know each other. They could be blind. Um, 
but they are able to experience the full range of emotions and they're able to have a couple of hours out of their week in this crazy world that we live and be able to forget all about that, to be totally present and just to experience the joy and the memories of, of the music that it brings. Healthy escapism. It's beautiful. Yeah, I, I love that. Um, at, at some point, and I think we're going to definitely do a, pay, a, a phase two, I, 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 I want to talk about how, you know, you're, you're booking a lot of tribute bands and, uh, and how things have changed from, you know, the, the day when everything was originals and, and now basically the, the clubs and promoters seem to want, you know, the, the cover bands or tribute bands. But before we get there, just a tease for, for the second phase of this, I wanted to talk, if you would, about, about Cipollina and, and the guys in the Dinosaurs, some of my favorite Bay Area musicians. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, in 1981, um, I was working with Chicago Blues Power, and a guy by the name of Michael Dijon uh, came into sit with the band, a fabulous blues singer. Um, Michael and I became good friends. I ended up booking his band. But he came up to me one day and he says, I have a friend who just passed the bar. He's becoming a lawyer, but he's also a musician and he's, he wants to reform a band and get back out there. Um, he was talking about Barry the Fish Melton from Country Joe and the Fish. So Barry and I had lunch in San Francisco. And um, like I say, he had just passed the bar. A little, little side note there. Um, Barry Melton passed the bar without ever spending one day in law school. And... Um, other than a guy by the name of Abraham Lincoln, I've never heard of anybody doing that. But anyway, Barry and I talked and um, we started to put the band together. And uh, at first it was called Fish and Chip with Barry Melton, uh, John Cipollina from Quicksilver Messenger Service, Peter Albin from Big Brother and the Holding Company, and Spencer Dryden from the Jefferson Airplane. Um, and they, uh, they played a few gigs and then they decided to, to call it the Dinosaurs. Um, they played their first gig at the Marin County Fair in July of 1982. Um, shortly after that, Robert Hunter, the lyricist from the Grateful Dead, joined the band, and um, and they were off and running. <laughs> Over the years, um, from from 82 until 89, when John Chipolina passed away, I was fortunate to become his good friend and also managed his business. Um, he was playing with as many as six bands at any one time, um, and he was for sure one of the most wonderful human beings and one of the most outstanding musicians that I've ever been, been blessed to work with. I have a dinosaur question. Did they make any recordings? They did. Um, they did a record. Uh, I don't have it here in front of me. Um, they, they did one record, The Dinosaurs. Um, and uh, I've got tons of recordings because I recorded most of their shows on cassette tape at that time and, and some on uh, I have some videos. I think the Smithsonian ought to look into you. I agree. You, you have a very rich history and I also wonder. Nice. This is a, a DVD, uh, three DVD set we did uh, of John Chipolina Recoil. Um, I, I co-produced it with John's sister and a guy by the name of Jesse Block. And um, it's, it's got a lot of interviews and, uh, of course, a lot of John's music on it. Was Nick, 
is, was Nick Gravenides a dinosaur at any point? He was not. Um, I worked with uh, his band, uh, the Gravenitis Chipolina Band, also known as Thunder and Lightning. Um, but they were they were separate entities. I did get to go to Greece with Nick uh, Gravenitis and John Chipolina in April of '89, about five weeks before Chipolina passed away. And uh, of course, Nick is Nick the Greek, so he was back in his home country, and um, it was it was thrilling to to play uh, four gigs in, in Greece with Nick and John. Uh, one of my favorite singers. Uh, just yeah, Nick is the best. Just a great guy. Uh, and uh, sort of fill us in a, a little bit about what you're doing now, because you're still you're still booking. Yes. Uh, and uh, uh, tell us a little bit about what the how the business has changed a bit, and we'll we'll get into more uh, uh, next time, but. Uh, but you, you've got an amazing perspective on, on the business, I think. Well, I, I, I feel, and I've often said this to people, I'm glad I'm, I'm as old as I am because I grew up in the greatest era of music ever. Um, and people will argue with that, but um, you know, I, I, I stand by that. Um, and uh, so I'm working with a lot of bands from that era. Um, be they original bands like Big Brother and the Holding Company, Janis Joplin's original band, who I've worked with since the original four guys reunited in 1987. Um, I'm working with um, tribute bands like the Unauthorized Rolling Stones. Uh, I work with an excellent uh, band that uh, does uh, Johnny Cash and June Carter songs. I work with uh, a group called Chicago The Tribute. Um, which of course is a Chicago tribute band. I work with a Tom Petty band called The Refugees. Um, of course, I'm still working with Barry Melton and he has an all-star band. Uh, in fact, they're gonna be playing on the 15th of July at uh, Union Square, a free outdoor show at two o'clock. And do you think there's, again, I'll get more into this next time, but do you think that the tribute bands are successful because people just love the old music so much, and or or it's the only way that promoters can get people in the seats. Or do you think there's room for new music as well? Well, I think there'll always be room for new music, but when you're going out to see a tribute band, you know what you're going to get. Um, and uh, again, to really dissolve yourself into that music and immerse yourself into that music, um, it's probably easier to do if you're hearing songs that you've known for decades. Yeah. Um, so I think that that's a, a big reason why tribute bands are doing so well, that uh, the music itself is, is, um, is stellar. And again, I always like to say that the best gigs in the world are ones where the dance floor is totally packed and when everybody is singing along, because you have that unification between the artist and the, the audience, that they, they become one in that situation. Their bodies are moving to the music, they're dancing, and they're singing along, um, you know, just as the band is singing. So it's, it's really a unifying experience. And I think that's why um, tribute bands are, are, are so popular. And of course, you know, club owners know that. Uh, you know, when uh, they book the unauthorized Rolling Stones, they're going to get Rolling Stones uh, fans. Um, I also work with a, a wonderful tribute band called the Traveling Will Berries Review. Oh. 
Um, and of course, the Wilburys, uh, the Traveling Wilburys Review, they're drawing fans from Bob Dylan, Tom Petty, Roy Orbison, Electric Light Orchestra, and the Beatles, because all of those people were involved in the yeah. original Traveling Wilburys. And yeah. I have to assume these bands are making money. Uh, I, I know how tough the uh, for musicians it is to uh, survive as a musician. It is, and I've always said that musicians and, and nurses are the saints of this world because Absolutely. they sacrifice so much to, to contribute to our health and our happiness. Um, yes, the bands are making money um, to greater and lesser degrees, but um, okay. you know they're they're following their passion, and um, I'm just so blessed that I've been able to to support that and try to handle the business part of the music business. Um, so they can, you know, just be creative and, and do their thing on stage. You're keeping the magic of another time alive. Okay, Mark, we're about to run out of out of time, and just so we don't get caught in the middle, uh, I want to thank you, Steve, and we'll do a part two, and uh, everybody can can come back for for more of these great stories. Thank you. Thank you, you Steve. Just thrilled you're doing this. Beautiful. Thank you, I really appreciate your what you're doing, and uh, let's stay in touch. I look forward to our next talk. Will do. Thank you, guys. Bye-bye.